Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Foresight's Intelligent Corporation Group, and welcome especially to one of our special Zcash Foundation-sponsored podcast episodes of the Sheeta Transactions podcast. Uh, in this podcast, we interview a variety of different folks, including cryptographers, computer security specialists, um, privacy activists, and so forth, on why it is that we should not give up uh, shielded transactions, what we may lose by giving them up, um, and also how it is that we can protect uh, our private life uh, a little bit better in the future. And so I'm really, really happy today to be joined by Wiley Sleeping. Alan, he was the first engineer at Protocol Labs, uh, apparently also technical advisor at Twitter's Blue Sky, which I didn't know until stopping your Twitter yesterday. So very cool. Maybe we get into that too. And you care very deeply about IPFS and Lip2P, CoinList, Falcon, and Estuary. Maybe we can talk about that also a little bit. And uh, according to your Twitter bio, you live on Earth, but on GitHub, you live in the metaverse. So we have to figure that one out as well, where you are these days. Yeah, it's difficult. It's very difficult. <laughs> Uh, but I'm glad that uh, yeah that you're in dual locations. Um, uh, okay, wonderful. So um, maybe to bring people up to speed, this is our third part of the Sheila Transaction podcast. Uh, we started off quite strong with Andrew Miller. Uh, he had a really wonderful, fantastic bounty that we're still about to release. So get excited for that. Then we followed up with Zuko. And so now I'm really, really happy to have you here. Uh, why? And I'm very grateful for Zuko to have connected us in the first place. So thanks a lot for making time. Um, I know that, you know, um, there's probably a bunch of other people in the room here uh, and backstage you can ask much better questions than I can, but I'll start with a few like softballs and then maybe um, we can see if others have questions too. So it's always a very, I guess, community-oriented podcast episode. Uh, okay, cool. So maybe to bring people up to speed, um, just introduce yourself perhaps in a few words um, and perhaps you could also tell us a little bit about, you know, what got you into the cryptography or security space and so far as you're in it right now, uh, and how did you see the entire field shift a little bit, just to provide some color on, uh, you know, what is the field about, what got you excited about it, and, and where are we now? Yeah, so I'm where are you sleeping? Yeah, in real life, I sometimes go by Jeremy. And I've been working at Protocol Labs for about eight years now. And I initially got excited about, you know, working on IPFS because it seemed like a very utopian ideal of having... Uh, like access to all the information from anywhere and having to be able to, you know, trustlessly access whatever data you wanted. Uh, it seemed like a really cool thing. So I just wanted to use it. And it turned out that it didn't quite exist yet at the time. It was just a, an idea in a white paper. So I started helping out, you know, contributing open source. And at some point, uh, Juan offered me a job and I ended up being the first employee at the company. And spent, you know, most of the past eight years uh, learning a ton about how, you know, how open source works, how cryptography works, how peer-to-peer -peer systems work, how local, you know, local first networks work. And really just enjoying a lot of, uh, a lot of the interesting things that the space has to offer. In, I think, 2016, um, I got, I don't remember how I heard about Zcash, but I think I met Suko in Berlin and he was excitedly talking about, you know, this new thing he was uh, going to start working on. And shortly after that, I started like mining, mining Zcash for fun um, on the test net. And then when it launched, I was, you know, 
had a Zcash miner running on the mainnet. And that was that was a kind of a really fun experience. But um, it got me definitely got me excited about Zcash and the potential you know applications that it could bring. Wonderful. Um, that uh, it's always really interesting to know how people like how people actually meet. Uh, and then what kind of light paths that that unlock for them? So it's it's interesting how idiosyncratic that always is. Um, but perhaps you know to bring folks a little bit up to speed on like what is the cryptography space in general? You know, the, if we think of that as an enabling technology of shielded transaction in the first place, what does that entail for you, or what would you even interested uh, in the space? And where do you think your focus areas lie here a little bit? The general concept of shielded transactions is really a no brainer because I mean. Calling it a shielded transaction, really, it, I think it's almost a misnomer because it's much closer to what, you know, transactions between people actually should be. You know, when you think about you know, the, the majority of human history and how, you know, people transacted between each other with cash or coins or, you know, tokens of some sort, it wasn't, it wasn't all at a giant globally publicly auditable log. It wasn't, you know, using electronic, you know, credit cards that, reported back to companies. It was much more, you know, person to person, me me to you and respecting in that manner. And so, you know, the whole shielded transaction idea really respects that a lot more than most, you know, digital payment systems out there. I, I can I can talk to why we use the um, term shielded transactions. We we were trying to to come up with a word to distinguish it from transparent transactions. If, yeah. if Zcash hadn't had transparent transactions, then there would have been no need for the word shielded in that context. I I completely agree that um, basically transactions need to be shielded. Sarah, do you want to say just who you are? Because this oh is hi. A <laughs> Hi, um, uh, Dara Hopwood, uh, pronouncing here. Um, I'm a, a designer of um, Zcash. Um, I've been with uh, the company, first the Zcash company, then ECC um, from the start, really. Um, and I'm the lead author on the um, Zcash protocol spec. Wonderful. And can one of you, since we're already deep into the semantics here, um, give some more coloring on wild shielded transactions and not private transactions. Any points on this? Or to be honest, I can't remember why we didn't say private. Oh, I think that you know, in conversations, it was usually just a a little bit more of a um, distinguished and uh, individualized and teased out way of saying what uh, was meant by this, rather than the more private term, which I think often has a bunch of different connotations as well for individual people. So trying to basically reclaim the term. Uh, a little bit and making it your own again, which is interesting. Yeah. I think once you have a term and it flies, which you have with Nala technology, then a bunch of people uh, pile on the term, which you had the same with AI, then a bunch of people pile on the term and you kind of have to cover your own language again by just inventing a new word for it. Yeah, I, actually, I, I remember now. So um, privacy is, is kind of an ambiguous word. I mean, you have things like the GDPR, which are not actually preventing the information um, from being readable. They're, they're saying nicely to people, don't, don't spread this personal information, um, which is um, not really the concept that we wanted to get at. Wonderful. Okay, we nailed it. I like this new brain nice. something. And Okay, cool. So perhaps um, you could bring us a little bit up to speed why on um, why on why it is that you know, we should even care about this in the first place. Like, what you know, if if someone you know came new to the scene and was like, "Well, why would I really care about my transaction being 
uh, shielded. Perhaps you can even point to a few uh, international or geopolitical events that you know make that a little bit more uh, have have a bit more hand and foot for people that uh, may stumble into this field um, as a layperson. Yeah, I mean it's a really complicated topic because on one hand you have you know various governments that go into controlling how people spend and use their currency and using you know using a lot of the surveillance uh surveillance systems to you know track how people spend their money and track what people do there uh, and from that perspective there's definitely a lot of bad situations that can you know, arise you see you know weirdly the government of canada trying to block all these protesters accounts which regardless of whether or not you agree with what they're saying uh, like economically sanctioning your own citizens um that one seems a bit weird to me uh and that's that's like a very near to home country like especially to, you know to me in the northern united states like canada's right across the border like that's a very draconian thing happening not too far from home and you know situations like that are really you know what's in the current zeitgeist of you know why should the transactions matter i think you know you run into a lot of other situations um on the the broader you know less immediate more subtle scale where if every transaction you you ever make is fully public and people can know and follow you around um they can kind of know how much money you have. They can know, you know, what you might have to lose, which can lead to a lot of bad situations. Um, if, you know, if, for example, rule of law breaks down, you can be subject to more extortion. You can be all sorts of, you know, scary things that definitely we don't think about on a day-to-day basis, but we also do have some baseline level of privacy in, you know, our day-to-day transactions, like sure, you know, spending money with your credit card isn't actually all that private, but it is at least private to a certain set of people. And it's harder to get to than if everything was just, you know, on Bitcoin fully public. My take is generally not that everything should be completely private. I think there are situations where you actually do need some accountability. Um, and sit, like there's a number of systems that are starting to think about this problem where like potentially, you know, you exist within the government, you know, within the government's right, you know, rule. And uh, you need to at least be able to respect provably and with as much privacy as possible, some of the asks that they have. Well, cool. okay. Later on, I think we'll get a little bit also into the more, what's like a gray scenario between like the, um, yeah. like everything transparent and, and, um, and everything private. Or shielded, um, can, maybe. Can I, jump, can I jump in for a little bit? Jump in. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, as well as um, just not revealing how much money you have, which obviously is an important thing for your safety, um, there's, there's all kinds of other things that can be inferred about you by where you spend money or where you yeah. get money from. Um, it, even your sexuality, um, uh, medical conditions that you might have. Um, if you take drugs, even if they're only just frowned upon by society rather than actually being illegal, um, the, there are things that might get you into trouble with your employer and so on. Um, so if you don't have financial privacy, then you can't have privacy. You can't have privacy for the things that if we were talking about communications, it would be more obvious to people that that should be encrypted. 
Okay, cool. Well, I think I usually um, like to think of it as it's like the moment that you think that first is important. It's kind of the moment that it's too late. And so it's the type of thing that is like always uh, kind of like a hidden uh, benefit until uh, when it becomes, when it matters, then uh, it's kind of too late to care about it. So yeah, uh, very, very much agree. Okay, wonderful. So um, perhaps we can jump in a little bit on like what it actually is that uh, you're working in um, at the moment um, and what you're currently focused on. I think there were a few really interesting tweets uh, recently that I saw. For example, you recently tweeted that Filecoin built the highest volume deployment of TK Stark secrets in existence to date. And then Zuko was super thrilled and retweeted that this came out of the Guaf 16 proof um, that Zcash deployed and Zcash saving these. So why is this so exciting? Like that's, a, I guess, a very like specific question, but maybe we start right here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really it's really exciting because this is, you know, Zcash was the first um, network to really get Snarks out into being, you know, used by anybody, um, let alone just, you know, an implementation that works. And that, like, that took the, the, the state of the cryptography a long ways. And one of the reasons, you know, aside from me thinking Filecoin is cool and all, that I'm excited that, you know, we built this huge deployment of CK Snark circuits is that we're pushing the boundaries of the technology and really, like, spent investing a lot in the research and engineering side of how can we do this faster and better and more and um, the really addressing the scalability concerns because you know the first the first release of Zcash it took what five minutes or something to actually make a shielded transaction. So if you're talking about the original zero cash circuit that that definitely took more than a minute. Um, yeah. and we we reduced the number of constraints in Sprout by two. So that, that took about, I think it was 50 seconds typically, um, something like that. And then in one of the later releases, it's now down to just a few seconds. And then I think if you if you take that circuit and apply some of the like code optimizations that we have, we've made over in the Filecoin side, you can get that same circuit down even faster. And we have a GPU prover. So you can utilize you know graphics cores in order to compute this much, much faster to the point where it's entirely unnoticeable if you want to do these, you know, zero-knowledge circuits for your transactions. And the more scalable we get them, the faster you can compute these SARCs, the, the more interesting circuits you can do. So Zcash itself is a very, like, a very simple payment protocol. Um, it's, you know, it doesn't allow any programmability. It doesn't allow you to, you know, write smart contracts full stateful smart contracts aside it you know doesn't let you do things like bitcoin script which is a much simpler and reduced set of you know operations with more advanced zero knowledge proofs you could have some scriptability into that transaction and still have it have the same ux um, and not you know take minutes to compute your transaction proof us pushing the state of the art on how fast we can do these things is why i'm excited very cool. Well, um, what a like learning curve for you. <laughs> Very nice. Um, are you involved in any other cryptographic tools that you know you just want to throw out here? I think it always helps to just see a little bit of what's even available, right? Many people I think aren't even aware of all of the kind of tools that really from the outside do look like magic, the types of things that you can do with them. Like even the knowledge tools like do look like magic from the outside, I think. And in fact, like are often, you know, um being sh showcased through magic tricks, <laughs> at least by Zuko does it. But, you know, could you perhaps like um, point to a few that you're particularly excited about? I think I saw you 
tweeting about a proof of space time recently. Perhaps uh, you want to color on why that's exciting or pick any other one that you may be excited about. Yeah, there's a, a bunch of cool stuff happening. I think um, one of the ones that is on the same order of magic as uh, a zero proof is homo encryption and general uh, like you know shielded computation, as I've heard it called, where you can execute a program without even knowing what you're executing and have it be verifiable that you did it correctly. The The technology here is still a long ways away from being practical for most use cases, but there's a number of groups I've seen working on it and trying to make it faster and trying to build hardware to do the operations faster. And if we had a, a practical primitive for this that worked well, there'd be a large, a, a large number of things would become possible that are currently not. You could, you know, hypothetically remove all trust from servers while still having servers. A server could not know what it's computing on. It could not actually be able to decrypt your data, but it could still operate over it. It could still, you know, store it for you and it could still service API requests even for you. And there's just a number of crazy things you could do here that are amazing for privacy. Um, if only we had this you know, primitive functional. There's also a lot of stuff happening in federated learning where you can take your own private data and contribute it to a machine learning model like without actually leaking your information. And this is hard to do. Um, I don't know if anybody's really done it with like full privacy. I think in a lot of cases where I've seen federated learning, you can still infer some individual information. But I know there's a number of groups, like I think OpenMind uh, has been working on like fully differentially private federated learning, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, Andrew Trask wrote a really fantastic post on safe AI uh, using federated learning. Nice. And uh, it's really wonderful because it also protects uh, the algorithm from knowing really what it's computing on. So that could, if you care about long-term AGI um, and about that safety, that could also be a potential um, benefit. I think, Daira, I saw you unmuting. Do you want to fill us on again? Yeah, um, so, so I'm quite encouraged by the fact that we now know how to do pretty much all of cryptography um, in a post-quantum, so resistant to quantum computers, right? Um, um, we, we don't know yet whether um, it would be possible to, to build feasible quantum computers, but if we could, that would break... Um, a lot of the cryptography that is currently being used. Um, but actually quite recently, um, uh, knowing how to do ZK snarks um, in a post-quantum way um, with good proof sizes and um, being able to do recursive proofs, um, that was kind of an unsolved problem. Um, and there's a recent scheme called Plunky2 that basically solves that problem, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, we we know how to do signatures, key exchange, and now zk stocks, um, uh, all in a post post quantum way. Oh, that's awesome! I hadn't heard of Plunky two yet. It's, it's well worth looking at. Uses some of the ideas from um, uh, Halo two. It's, it's using fried commitments, if you know what that is. That's um, the same um, kind of commitments that are used in stocks. Wonderful. Cool. We need a little tutorial next time. I think when um, you know listeners are interested. We had Zuko discuss at least Halo 2 recently on, and so that's probably um, in our archives somewhere if someone Googled for it. Um, okay, cool. So now that we have at least a little bit of the landscape covered, like very roughly, um, or at least in tidbits, what's interesting about it, um, you know, maybe we can get back to 
you know, on the long run, why aren't we care uh, or why would one care? And, you know, what is it also that we can do to actually uh, protect ourselves better? And I think that, you know, from a consumer angle, I think that's specifically uh, exciting for people that are working in the space. And so could you perhaps fill in a little bit? Um, you know, I think Mark Miller um, always likes to paint uh, this uh, dystopia of um, a future in which, for example, mass traffic analysis can lead to actually physical extortability of anyone who ever transacted using a public blockchain. And I think if we actually are serious about moving much of our commerce into crypto commerce, and especially linking that to our physical places, uh, especially if we, you know, actually wanted to order stuff um, on there, and then, you know, that would be potentially quite dangerous. So perhaps as a consumer, if I was listening to this, uh, what could I do to really protect myself a little bit better uh, when I'm out there, especially transacting Web3 or crypto commerce or what have you? Yeah, I think the being very aware that most cryptocurrencies are not private, is just really the most important thing. And as you're, you know, as you're thinking about how to use these technologies, being aware that the things you do for, for the most part are not just, you know, public, they're part of the permanent indelible record that will never be removed. Keeping that in mind, like, and not the, you know, Bitcoin is anonymous thing that gets parroted around randomly. Um, is just important just for, for the average consumer who's not deep in the tech, like knowing what is private and what is not and what that means for your data, I think is going to help people make the right decisions often. Okay. That's not really like there's a specific, you know, no, no. that you would recommend. I think, I mean, using, using a system like Zcash is, is the, you know, the better approach, but it's not practical for most people right now because, well, most, you know, merchants don't accept it. Um, the adoption isn't there. And so at the current stage that we're at, it's it's not easy to do the right thing. I don't know, Dara, if you have any takes here, but it's, we're in a weird spot in the, the space right now. I mean, I think just being aware of the fact would already be pretty good. I think it's very easy to forget, right? Um, and so, um, yeah, I think caution for now and maybe, maybe a good uh, policy. But... Um, well, I actually, uh, when I did some digging a while back into some Zcash related project, there was something called Zbay. And so they, I think, were trying to recreate like a, an eBay using um, more of the Zcash, um, more of the Zcash blockchain, which would be interesting if you actually wanted to, uh, you know, give away your press address or, or whatever, what have you. But uh, maybe these things are still a little bit, um, yeah, maybe like V2. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. wonderful. Um, so for people actually like, moving from, you know, consumers to actually people like building um, bits in the space. Um, you know, why is it, for example, even interesting for people that are actually building products out or like dApps or what have you um, in Web3 to actually care about having actually transactions be part of them, right? I think actually Kate Sills, who's on this call, um, you know, actually once made a comment that public blockchains could enable really anti-competitive behavior, um, for example, by allowing the next Amazon to analyze the world's transactions in detail um, and then to really cover rising products and stuff. And so those are, I think, more, uh, you know, indirect uh, effects, but nevertheless, some that we should probably pay attention to. And so perhaps you have a few ideas here as well. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting thinking about if if all the world's transaction data were actually fully public, what would the, the carrying on effects be? And so let's say, you know, there's a new Amazon that, you know, say existing Amazon has all of their transaction data 
public on a blockchain. Um, assuming we've got the scalability problems figured out for that. Now, a new company comes along and is looking at all of this data and trying to arbitrage, you know, and do something better by making use of all this data. The question is, can they avoid contributing the same data to the system? So if everybody else's data is public, but theirs is private, then they can get an advantage. And that's where the, I think that's where the issue is. If there's an, an information asymmetry, then you end up in a weird spot here where one company has an advantage just because they are using, you know, privacy preserving technology and hiding information that other people would, you know, be able to make use of otherwise. If everybody has to use the fully public thing, then, well, everybody's kind of on the same playing field in terms of uh, a competitive advantage. So I think it's, you, you need, you know, all of one or all of the other. And I definitely prefer all of, you know, more private than all of less private. If I can chime in here, I think oh, yeah. um, to me, it seems like having fully public blockchains is a complete non-starter for businesses adopting blockchains. So I think I think it's not that we're going to see all businesses have to deal with public blockchains. I think it's that we're going to see them just rejecting the blockchain right. industry as a whole, except for, you know, uh, these research arms that they might they might try to spin off. Um, and, and I think we saw this with the Constitution DAO, unfortunately, where their maximum bid was public because they had, you know, this on-chain treasury. And so they were able to be outbid and they weren't able to have the same bidding strategies as a normal bidder would. Yeah, that's a fascinating example. Like somebody just looks and sees, oh, they can only spend this much. Great. Easy win. And yeah, the, the, the point being, if companies are trying to make the decision to use you know, a particular payment technology. And what they currently have is, you know, Stripe or, you know, standard credit card payment networks. That gives them enough privacy because their competitors are not likely to be able to just go and read all their data. And if they're trying looking at giving that up and losing, you're like giving somebody else a competitive advantage for, you know, what's what's the trade-off they're making here. And I think that's where the tricky bit happens. And I do think you're right that they're just not going to make that trade-off. Look at me doing my hand thing. Um, so I think one of the things that, that's um, key to think about this is right now we're in this sort of weird world of fake privacy, which is in order to keep some of these principles that we're thinking about where like transactions aren't available for everyone to see uh, or um, we can store data and we can share it selectively with people. Um, we're having to do this thing which will participate in this thing that Bruce and I calls feudal, feudal security, which is basically we have to entrust uh, um, some organization to do this for us. And the deal that we have with that organization is in return, they get to see all our data. So, for instance, with, with um, uh, a bank, you know, they, they keep all of these accounting details private to everyone except themselves. So they get this insight. And of course, their um, their motivations for keeping that private and, and when they keep it private are very different from the the end user. Sometimes the, it, it, compared to the average user, sometimes compared to like other cases, right? So the classic one for me was... Um, 
an organization, a nonprofit that I worked with in the past um, that is very cautious about uh, privacy. Uh, the organization that kept all of our records did feel that addresses were that important. That, that like, oh, if this got exposed, and to be clear, they were keeping them private, but I was interrogating them about how private, like how well protected. Are these encrypted, what are they? And they were like, well, it's just addresses. You know, that's public information. And of course, for, for many people on the internet, their address is an extremely private bit of information, and that privacy can change over time. So uh, what we're really looking at here is not only trying to recreate the kind of privacy that we expect in our living room or in our normal environment, but trying to create it in a way in the digital space that doesn't require us sort of essentially inviting someone into that room to make sure everything is, is keeps private. I think that's a, that's a real challenge. Like how did we build this without having third parties knowing everything about us? And that's where homomorphic encryption um, and, and, all, and all of these processes are about. They're about doing it without having to trust someone absolutely. It's also important to say that we, we actually cannot trust um, some of these big organizations. I was just looking up now the um, the Equifax data breach um, so it leaked private information of um, 150 million um, U.S. citizens, 15 million British citizens, um, uh, information that could could be used for identity theft. Um, so we we just cannot trust the centralization of everyone's data. Um, into honeypots that can easily be attacked. Wonderful. I love that we're already moving to a very collaborative podcasting here. Um, I have three more hands up, so maybe we'll just move through Brad, David, and Adrian, and then uh, we'll loop into a new question. So, Brad, we go. Well, I mean, I've tried to look at this from a lot of different directions and what the public is interested in as well as what we uh, privacy advocates are interested in. And um, I, I think we need to get a better understanding of that, get an understanding of what people are going after. In particular, uh, one type of transaction that's seen a lot of criticism is the uh, transaction to an anonymous recipient, where the sender does not know who the anonymous recipient is, which is unfortunately commonly used for ransomware payment, and it wasn't really practical to do before. And this has attracted a great deal of negative public attention. And I've been curious about what the uh, positive values are of transactions to anonymous recipients. And there may be some, but whether they outweigh those is another question. Historically, we've uh, been comfortable with the idea that police can do investigations under what used to be the old system. Namely, you know, there's probable cause to believe that uh, a crime has been committed. They get a warrant. They get special investigatory powers. And then they can dig into things like private financial data and other things in order to do their investigations. We've become very scared about the fact that the modern computerized world allows broad data analysis, phishing expeditions, you know, finding uh, you because they see everyone's data finding you. And we want to stop that uh, large-scale privacy invasion going on, but most people actually still want to protect the power of the police to do this. Another recent um, thing that's made the news is the question of whether cryptocurrencies make it impossible to block things, for example, like uh, Russia moving its assets around and hiding it when it's become an international pariah for engaging in atrocities and war actions. And many people would like to say they don't want a financial system where we can't stop that. And so how do we balance these needs from the needs we've just 
mentioned, the desire, of course, to have our own personal transactions be private, to not have large analysis be done of it, for leaks not to happen. How do we make that balance? Uh, because a pure approach to absolutely zero-knowledge transactions means no one can ever um, reverse the privacy, not even the person who made the transaction and not even people who have a warrant. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that the answer is somewhere in the middle. Like everything being completely private from everybody else is, you know, one end of the extreme and everything being completely open and public is the other end. And definitely there's a, there's a middle ground to toe. Zcash does support um, viewing keys, which are keys that allow you to um, to see a, um, a selectively information about, um, say, all of the transactions into an address or, or going out from an address. Um, I, I'd like to push back on the idea that anonymous recipients um, are a problem because in practice... If you leak recipient um, information, you're giving um, an adversary um, a lot of information that they can then use as a starting point um, to to make inferences about the transaction graph. Um, If you start with um, a system in which you're hiding as much information as possible, then you can selectively disclose information. Um, if you start with informa- uh, a system that that reveals things by default, it's very difficult to. to uh, indeed, but in the, what's been enabled is the transaction where the sender is not even allowed to get any information about the recipient. I'm not talking about uh, overseeing entities getting information on the recipient, but even the sender can't in a in a typical uh, cryptocurrency transaction other than through leaks like bitcoin of course we've we've seen many examples of people discerning what's going on even though it wasn't intended uh so that's where these special attributes that you can add to a transaction optionally uh don't assist you because of course the ransomware author is telling you you need to pay me by uh, only by a fully private transaction a recipient anonymous transaction so um so I've been interested in in what values have been put forward for that particular type of recipient anonymous transaction, the type that a ransom demander likes, uh, that would make us say we want that transaction. Because if there's no actual positive use of it, maybe we should not want to implement it. Perhaps we'll go to David and Adrian next for quick comments, and then um, why can uh, tie them up again and uh, we'll get back onto the question train. Yeah, I think this is actually closely related to the discussion that, that was uh, occurring. So there's a trade-off between unremovable privacy and selectively viewable transactions. Um, so there are a lot of places where like, you really want to be able to prove that you've paid um, or you need to be able to be audited um, and um, you want to allow kind of selectively your accountant to be able to claim this or uh, have some way to, to do that. Um, Versus uh, the problem that, like, you don't want somebody to be able to, you know, show up with a uh, rubber hose and smack you until you give them the key to make sure that, like, you know, the, the government can always show up and say, like, okay, we're putting you in jail unless you reveal this, unless there's some class of transaction that can't be revealed even if you want to. I just, I'm, I'm interested in how you view that trade-off and... Like what what the system can allow or what it should allow. Yeah. Why do you want to answer that directly? Yeah, I think 
there's a lot of really interesting stuff in this direction where, um, as Dara says, starting with a fully private, but then having selective disclosures and then even taking it one step further and like opting into specific selective disclosures automatically, I think is an interesting take where if you look at systems like CAPE or this um, one I just saw today called UTT, they're different systems that allow you to bake in policies about disclosure where you know, for example, UTT gives the example of saying all of your monthly transactions that total less than a certain amount are fully private. And then if you go above a certain amount, it starts to be reported in some specific manner that is agreed upon publicly by the policy. And these, I think, are the types of systems that are a bit more practical to, um, you know, and more maybe not more practical, but more palatable to, you know, governments. And in order for these things to actually take off and for us to actually get the level of privacy we need, you have to have mass adoption. And that's going to imply, um, you know, a tacit approval by whatever government you happen to be, you know, beholden to. Great. Uh, Adrian? I want to talk a little bit about this middle ground of why it uh, keeps coming back to uh, between accountability and uh, privacy. And uh, in terms of reputation, I would have expected, I'm not at all an expert, that after, given the technology of zero-knowledge proofs and the experience that we've already had out there, that there would be some advance in contextual reputation keeping and systems put in place, like we're working on, you know, decentralized storage, you know, fundamentally, uh, um, that uh, groups could adopt in order to introduce uh, reputation uh, in a fair and game-resistant way. And I'm curious uh, why I haven't heard more about this uh, zero-knowledge technology uh, being put in this context. This, this is definitely a very interesting one to me because um, it circles back around to identity. You know, as you're talking about reputation, you can't have reputation without some notion of identity to tie that reputation to. And in a lot of ways, we don't really have any form of decentralized identity yet. We have, you know, your online identity tends to be your Facebook or your Twitter or your email. Um, and then tying things provably to that, you know, is doable. You know, you have like Twitter blue checks, right? And you have like, you know, you could have a Wikipedia page, which is a level of reputation, right? But these are all very like fragile and manually um, developed things. And uh, until we have like a real, you know, identity system out there and, you know, maybe moving to things like trust graphs and different, you know, certifications and attestations that can apply to these decentralized identities, it's hard to get into having a reputation in these systems. But once you do have this, you can start having really cool proofs where you can prove that you hold a specific credential without revealing it. Or you can prove that you have some form of reputation without even revealing who you are, um, which I think is where these things get really interesting. The, the, like the zero knowledge proofs for these things actually end up being pretty straightforward. Um, it's just having the things to prove in the first place doesn't exist yet. Okay, wonderful. I think um, that actually there was a very long ago piece written by Mark Miller and maybe Eric on pseudonymous um, reputation, which I think was also referred to here just now in the chat. Um, and yeah, that's definitely, I think, an interesting middle ground. But um, perhaps we are already at the middle ground question. So if you already have 
I feel like we've been circling around this the, the whole time. And so if you do have, you know, other bits to say on this one of, you know, is there some kind of, you know, golden middle um, between shielded and non-shielded transactions uh, that, you know, we could aim towards that would maybe be more palatable for all sides and where we can reap the best of all worlds. Like what would such a future look like? This is something that I find really interesting because as I'm thinking down this path, I see transactions and payments and like your ability to transact with an economy as a form of just general communication. And, you know, when you look at the internet has given us the ability to communicate at like the, as broadly as ever has been possible in human existence. And we see a lot of weird side effects coming out of this. You have weird, you know, weird internet communities that get and, you know, get susceptible to misinformation that cause weird things like, uh, what is this QAnon groups and like all of this weird things that happen as a result of the fundamental layer of how we communicate has changed dramatically. And I think applying the same thing to money is going to potentially have other weird effects because, you know, the way you spend money is a form of communication. It all comes back to what we've been talking about just a minute ago of accountability. As you're, as you're participating in the economy, if you participate in a bad way, how you know bad is subjectively defined, and it's defined by whatever group you might be part of, and it is likely up to that group to hold you accountable. And figuring out how to have a private but accountable monetary system is really, I think, the golden ticket here. I don't really have many answers, but I've definitely seen some cool research around this, um, like the UTT paper I mentioned, and also Cape. Um, which is like a configurable asset privacy protocol. These are really interesting. I don't know if they're the right solution yet, but they're, I think, moving in a good direction. I'm going to argue for the fully private thing as the golden middle, um, because I think we live in an unbalanced society, a, a society where um, there is a lot of power in the hands of um, governments, large corporations, um, centralized bodies in general, um, and whatever we can do to claw back some power for the people um, is a good thing. I, I, I think that would be rebalancing our society. Yeah, I don't entirely disagree. I think that given the current state of the world, I do tend to agree. I think given a particular ideal, there's different, uh, it's, I mean, it's obviously complicated. I don't, I'm not going to like plant my flag in the ground and say this is where I'll die. But um, it's definitely worth exploring, you know, what might happen in these situations. Like, you know, there are, there are things we can all agree that are bad that people can do with money and communications over the internet. And it, are, are there other ways of combating that aside from, you know, holding people accountable through their communication mechanisms? I mean, let's take the case of ransomware. A, a ransomware attack is going to leave traces other than the payment. Um, and those are probably right. what you need to, um, to focus on um, tracing. Um, if, if someone has to break into your computer, that, that is going to leave traces. I, I don't know if that's sufficient, though. Like, <laughs> that's the thing you actually have to prevent, not the paying of money. Right. So I feel like money is, and we see this in a lot of the attention that's being paid to the crypto space, where there's a lot of, there are a lot of behavior, both good and bad, that has um, been 
enabled by having a versatile digital currency uh, that reflects the characteristics of, of cash, right? Uh, and that's acting as a forcing function in a lot of other areas of weakness in society, right? That most, most particularly, I think, computer security. But we have to fix computer security. Like that's, I mean, the fact that, that we're seeing very visible targeted attacks being successful and then getting, uh, 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 and being worthwhile, economically worthwhile, because there is a possibility of this, uh, of this reward, right? Uh, if we were to make all digital trans monetary transactions, um, visible, then we would be in still in a situation where that security was available, was still weak. Um, it would just be that it would be the, the attackers would have to spend a little bit much more money on covering their tracks. Right. And if you have billions of dollars of private information or vulnerabilities, which we have, right. Computer security is so weak that we're, we're essentially stashing trillions of dollars behind extremely weak walls. And then when come, somebody comes in, right, they can spend a billion dollars on protecting their identity and still make a profit. Um, so I, I think that ultimately, I mean, I don't even know whether this is a medium or long-term goal. It certainly seems like a goal where rather than deliberately weakening some parts of security in order to defend already weak parts, other parts of security. It seems like the important thing to do is to strengthen all of the security. Um, and, um, and I think we're, we're just fast forwarding into a future rather than, um, uh, kind of walking off into some, some alleyway that, that, that we, we can get out of. This is going to be the future that we're in, whatever happens. And so we have to fix it rather than pretend that we can come up with solutions that will take us out of this future. We actually have missed so many opportunities to improve um, computer security. Uh, and the, the reason for that is capitalism, in my opinion. Why? Do you want to answer to this? Yeah, I mean, I think I generally agree with everything Danny says, just, you know, on principle. But I, th I think I, I think he's right. There's, you know, a, lo a lot of other aspects to the particular problem being solved that compromising on privacy in some ways is one solution. Doing other things to solve the same problem, you know, is likely the better solution. Um, I think, you know, to play devil's advocate a little bit, I think given how difficult it has been so far to actually get good computer security, um, you know, especially in light of all these, you know, things like uh, Spectre and Meltdown and, you know, deep security vulnerabilities at the processor level, is it practical to have like any expectation that your computer isn't completely owned at all times? I don't know. Mark Uge at this point always points to SEL4 and like <laughs> Very great, and we're very happy to have them on again very soon. But, but yeah, it's, it's difficult. And maybe uh, David with a comment, and then I want to have two more questions. Uh, we're already nearing the end of time, and uh, it has been wonderful, but we definitely have so much to think to cover. So the, the question of computer security, I think, is really important for a lot of things. And the question I've wondered a lot, and I feel like many people in the audience probably have useful thoughts on this, but um, is... Um, if you could get incentive compatible, like sharing of costs and like get people to pay for it, 
how much would it actually cost to rebuild like systems from the ground up secure? Is that a you know ten billion dollar project? Is it a hundred billion dollar project? Which are very large sums, but also or unimaginably large. Or is it like a we could spend a quadrillion dollars and we don't think we have any way to do it? I've always been skeptical of the idea that we can't do something because we would have to sort of rebuild everything because we rebuild everything anyway, right? Um, our, our technology changes um, to the point that we are not using things that were designed 20 years ago anymore, for the most part. I mean, the, there are obviously some exceptions. So if we made a concerted effort to research um, the approaches that have some realistic chance of success. I mean, I'm a fan of capability systems, but the, that's not the only approach. We should all be using memory-safe um, languages. If we did that, then we could solve this problem within the next 20 years. I think the, I mean, the main thing there is just adoption. Like, we know how to build better, safer software with, you know, yes, I agree, like object-capability-based systems for every component of the stack would be better, but then how do we get it into everybody's computers. That's the that's always been the tricky part of all these technologies. Is, is you know, can you get Apple to ship it? You, you can do all of this. The question is, um, is making things like ninety percent more secure um, effectively wasting all of your time because you're still going to have um, a bunch of vulnerabilities, or like would that actually do it? Like getting, would dealing with all of the types of vulnerabilities that we like currently know how to fix be enough to um, make ransomware non-viable because it's so hard to get into systems or it's just like, oh, and here are the other ways that they have to attack it that we hadn't made model yet? Probably not. It probably wouldn't actually have an effect because most of these uh, like computer fraud things now come down to social engineering. There's so much you know fraud that happens that's entirely not related to an actual you know security issue you know, in the strictest sense of the word. It's, you know, people are too trusting of other people and you can call somebody and claim to be somebody else. And a lot of times that'll work. They're rebuilding the system. Yeah. I'm actually optimistic that you can change the processes to remove those those weak points, even the social engineering ones. Yeah. Well, we are likely going to start a new technical seminar series on OCAPs and different ways of getting to computer security up next after the student transaction podcast. So perhaps we can table that discussion also for then. Um, I want to make sure that we hit the bounty question because uh, this is not just about talking, um, uh, the podcast, but it's also really about uh, enabling people to actually engage uh, with privacy preserving or shielded transactions. And so we usually ask a question at the end of this, and then we give a Gitcoin bounty, uh, and ideally in the future, like an actual uh, Zach bounty on, uh, on 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 proving that you've done it. And so if you could think of something, uh, like cook something up that people can already do in their homes and uh, to really dabble in and share the transactions and that they can then win the bounty for, that would be really wonderful. Why? Yeah, I think, you know, kind of related to the a lot of the topic discussion, if somebody can send a shielded transaction to somebody else, you could send one to me, I can provide my address if you want, but then provide um, a payment disclosure to claim the bounty. So you can reveal what the transaction you have sent was. I'm not sure how advanced the tooling in Zcash for this is. I know it exists, but I don't know. Maybe you can just reveal parts of it or if it's all or none. It exists for Sprout. You have to enable an experimental option. Um, and it's, it's a bit clunky. Um, 
sounds like a well, fun adventure for somebody. <laughs> I think so. I mean, sounds like it's worthy of a bounty. I think the last one uh, we even had uh, Zuko sending little messages with uh, with the transaction. So I think uh, you can get creative. Uh, let's see which messages you get. By. <laughs> um, okay, wonderful. We have one minute left. And I do want to get to, I think, your favorite question, which is, are there any bits why we should be excited about private uh, or like about the knowledge proofs or other cryptographic tools because they enable new things that we cannot currently do? Yeah, I have this um, kind of pet idea that I've been playing around with for a while, but with really fast and uh, Turing complete zero knowledge proofs, you can build games um, that are entirely trustless. You can play a game with somebody else, like for example, an RPG even, and the outcome of your play against and somebody else's play can be entirely that validated and be correct. Um, you can also do interesting things like play a, you know, a roguelike game, which is a one-player game, but has randomness by playing um, with a server where the server just provides a commitment to the randomness and reveals the randomness in its move choices um, as you play. So you can have a, a, a provable execution of an entire game uh, that does include randomness that's hidden from the player. Um, and this can be, you know, done to play like on-chain games where you can actually like, you know, stake, you could just take money on you actually winning the game or not, um, which I find really fascinating. The things moving in this direction of being able to not have to trust anybody, but not have to do it all on-chain. Yeah, I think that's always like a really compelling reason. Like we want that future also because of the thing, the new things that it enables, uh, not just uh, because it can, uh, it can patch a few of the holes that uh, I think that we left off. Okay, wonderful. I'm so, so happy for you to join us. And thank you, everyone, for making this such a collaborative podcast. It was really fun. Um, and and it's working well, I think, uh, to have, just have it be more of a group discussion. Uh, why I can't thank you enough for joining us. It was really, yeah, really wonderful to have you on. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, before we close, I just want to remind people that we have two things coming up uh, that are happening very soon. Number one is we have the Gaming the Future book club coming up and so this is the book that we already published i posted the link here in the chat we have gitcoin bounties to all of the chapters and you kind of helped us write it for the last year and so thanks for that and we have uh really wonderful had really wonderful speakers last year and now we have a really wonderful book club coming up with many of them coming back and actually discussing where the book is now um and then we if you're at east amsterdam we're having a decide um science day and so this one will be on, on April 20th and the tickets are now uh, open. And so you are uh, welcome to uh, join us there in case you're at East Amsterdam and if you want to discuss decentralized approaches to science. So those are two bits uh, where you can find us very soon. And with that, we're now two minutes over time. Just want to thank everyone uh, to jo for joining again. I'm really excited for the next one. And if you want to chat more, you can uh, come to our Discord server where I'll be hanging out most of the day. Thank you, White, and thanks everyone uh, for such a fantastic uh, podcast. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thanks, everybody.